Day, which means we are living the authentic life. And today we have the most amazing guest, Wesley Hunt. And I can't say on air what I call him. Okay, I will. He's a complete badass. I mean, and as a lady, there must be a better word, but I just keep going back to that word. And I'm from a military background, so I uh, went to Texas A&M, but West Point, 55 Apache missions in Iraq. Like, mm -hmm. it's absolutely incredible. And he lives out the authentic life and what you do, your commitment to our country, your connection to people yep. in the community, and the purpose that you have, that yeah. you've given up your private life <laughs> to little bitty girls at home, and yep. you're taking on this amazing run. So I'm going to read a little bit more about you. West Point, he spent eight years in the Army as the aviation branch, Apache Longbow helicopter pilot, 55 missions, when he was in Iraq, also Saudi Arabia, and then he went on to Cornell, three master's degrees, guys. Not one, not two, but three, and he's a businessman. So how did you possibly decide to set all that or bring that all with you and commit to running for Congress. First of all, thank you all for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm honored that you would actually even have me on your show to begin with, so I'm happy to be here. And that's kind of the most important question that you have to ask, is particularly when you get ready to take on an endeavor like this. My dad raised our family to believe in this notion that leadership is not about when it's convenient for you, but it's about when your country needs you. And if you look at where we are right now and the direction that we are headed, it is my humble opinion that we have to right this ship and pull this pendulum back in the direction that talks about preserving our values and our way of life and what, in my opinion, is the greatest country in the world. A little bit more about my family. Mm -hmm. I come from a military family as well. So my dad did 23 years in the Army. He retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, my sister, who was 10 years older than me, went to West Point and my family first. She served 23 years active duty as a military intelligence officer. She did two tours of duty in Iraq. She did two tours of duty in Korea. And on her final and 23rd year in the military, she spent that in Hawaii. And so I gave her a hard time because really, I'm like, sis, you had 22 years, not 23. I hate to break it to you. You're welcome. Uh, but she also has her uh, degree in applied mathematics. And I always have the distinction and honor of saying that I followed my sister to West Point. Uh, I went to West Point second in my family, became an Apache helicopter pilot, saw combat in Iraq, and once you see that, you get an appreciation for what we have right here in this country. And I've been on, I've been on six of the seven continents in the world. This is as good as it gets. It gets no better than this, and people are forgetting that, and I'm here to remind them. My brother is also a West Point graduate. He graduated a year after me. Uh, he went on to do five years in the Navy, Earned his master's degree. He switched teams. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's it's it's, real, it's, it's tough. It's tough enough. There's always one in the family. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I love I love him. I love him. But every, everybody makes mistakes, of course. And the Navy's fine. Beat Navy. Uh, and he got his master's degree uh, from Harvard Business School. Became a White House fellow, and then now works for Egon Zender, the executive search firm here in Houston. So there's 60 years worth of military service just in my immediate family. And at one point in 2006, uh, I was flying combat air missions in an Apache. Uh, my sister was in the green zone doing intel in Baghdad. And my brother was on a destroyer in the Arabian Gulf for two months at the same time. 
I lead with that story because I want to remind people that we aren't special. Mm-hmm. There are American families that have been doing this for generations. We are just a part of that solution, in my opinion, to preserve our values and our way of life. And that's what it takes to do that. People have died for us to be here. They have sacrificed a whole heck of a lot. And I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we take these Texas, specifically Houston, Texas values to to D.C. and not have it the other way around. And that's why I'm here. Fantastic. My um, my background a little bit. My father was a Marine just after the Korean War, so he didn't serve. But my stepfather served in France in World War II as an engineer. He would build a bridge. They would cross a river, and then when they were done with it, they'd blow the bridge up because of what they had to do. And he chose to serve over there. So I'm very proud of your service. Of course. And it touches my heart that people are willing to do that because we need – this is the greatest country in the world. It is. We have lived all over the world in our business adventures, and there's nothing better. There's no greater opportunity really to, to just – you can just do whatever you want here. So you went to um, – my daughter's rival school. Mm-hmm. My daughter's at River Oaks Baptist. Okay. And, 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 and tell us about what, what was that like going to school there? At, at uh, St. John's? At St. John's, yes. Yeah, you know, it was great opportunity, great school. Um, when I got there in middle school, I was actually the only black male in my grade. So it was kind of interesting uh, to kind of go from a, from a public school setting to not very much diversity at all. And what I was immediately met with were people that, quite frankly, didn't really care. They befriended me immediately, and I had a, I had a wonderful time at St. John's throughout my throughout my time there. And I'm actually currently serving on the board of trustees at St. John's now. And again, it's more just extended service uh, to make sure that we look that we look out for this next generation. But quite frankly, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think it's probably the most rigorous uh, education that you can get here. Uh, in the city of Houston and probably the state of Texas. And it kind of prepared me a lot for what I was going to see in the future and particularly prepared me for what I am seeing right now. Uh, I get to wake up every day and run for a seat that is River Oaks and it is West University and it's uh, the Memorial Villages and Memorial and Tanglewood and uh, the Energy Corridor, and it is Cyprus and Jersey Village. And it's it's an overwhelmingly uh, white district. And as a black man running in it, a lot of people will look at that and say, so how is that working out for you? And I would say, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I get to wake up every day and literally live Martin Luther King's dream. I literally get to be judged by the content of my character, not by the color of my skin. And these were the lessons that I actually learned early on at St. John's. And while I'm here to admit that we certainly have some work to do, everybody does, every country does, I would argue that the progress that we have made in such a short period of time is something that we need to build on and not burn it down. And I think I want to be a part of that solution instead of what I'm seeing happen around around the country right now. And it didn't come easy because I I did a little digging. I know you didn't live in the neighborhood you went to school and your parents would have to drive you 45 minutes to an hour a day each way to school. That's right. And that's a sacrifice they made. And that's good that they put that forth because they saw what this could do for that's you right. and what you could do for us. That's right. And I, I think they saw that you were a leader. Well, your family all is. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to know that your brother yeah. and sister did that. <laughs> and yeah. um, uh, a funny part of that, I heard another funny story. I heard that your brother's Irish. <laughs> <laughs> this is the greatest story ever. 
it's so funny. So my brother and I are 10 months and eight days apart. And consequently, um, we got really used to people assuming that we were twins. And so by the time we were about four and five years old, we got used to telling people in unison, of course, no, sir, ma'am. We were asked if we were twins. We would say, <laughs> no, sir, ma'am. You know, we're 10 months apart. We were at Randall's up in Northwest Houston. We were checking out, <laughs> and the lady looked, looked, turned around and looked at us and saw us, and she goes, oh, my gosh, y'all, y'all about the same size. Are y'all, are y'all twins? And we in unison retorted, no, ma'am, we're 10 months apart. She goes, oh, my goodness, y'all are Irish twins. And I started crying. Because I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, I, I thought I thought we were black. Like <laughs> I didn't know I was Irish. And that's when I first found out what Irish twins really meant. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm half Irish and half Italian, yeah. but I only claim the Italian part because it's much more interesting. <laughs> and my mom's like, why aren't you claiming the Irish part? <laughs> but um, so family, uh, your young girls, mm-hmm. it's coronavirus. You're... You have a baby who's now, what, two months old? I have a two-month-old and a 17-day-old. And ha- and your wife is has a doctorate in nursing, yep. so she is a strong woman as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. How do you leave them and go out into the world every day to meet people with coronavirus happening? I think some people are still so scared about that choice. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey with that and sure. how that's affected your family? Well, well, we all had it. We all had COVID-19. My, my entire family did. Uh, my daughter and I uh, were asymptomatic, actually, so we didn't really have any symptoms. My wife had a 48-hour cough and then had a lingering cough after that, never had a fever, not, never had a real big issue, and then she was, and we're, we're all fine, so we've all recovered. And then I had the the pleasure of giving plasma a couple of weeks ago. Hopefully that'll help out somebody else, and hopefully I'll be able to do do a little bit more here in the the upcoming weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, But but what I really want to focus on is making sure that everybody stays safe and we make Mm -hmm. decisions that we protect those who are the most vulnerable. Um, I'm not in that demographic. I think most of us actually are not in that demographic. But we need to be cognizant and aware of those who are in that demographic. And if we do that, I think there is a way to get our kids back to school safely. There's a way for us to get back to work safely and allow people the liberty to make their own decisions. That's what this country was founded upon with the idea and notion of keeping safety at the forefront. And we can do both. Mm. Um, what, what's been neat about my wife is that she didn't serve in the military, but she has served this country, mm-hmm. in my opinion, as a pediatric nurse practitioner. She works at Texas Children's. She's amazing. Um, and I got to brag on her a little bit. Uh, when we were in the hospital 17 days ago having our second daughter, we checked out a day early because we needed to get back on the on the campaign trail. And she looked at me and she said, Wesley, I didn't serve in the military uh, like you did, and I didn't deploy, but this is my opportunity to serve, and we need you to go win this election. Uh, so let's get back home. I'll watch the girls. We, we can go on vacation later, but you need to do what you can to make sure you win this because you're doing it for them in the first place. And, and that, that's just the sacrifices that, again, th- this, is, this is what people do for this country. This is why it's the greatest country in the world. And there's been so many other effects in addition to the illness caused by the virus. Mm-hmm. Last night we attended a virtual event for ABDA, which helps women who are victims of domestic violence. And that's been a huge uptick right. with this happening. Also, 
um, kids not eating because they can't go to schools. They don't get and that then, good meal, at least then, one good meal a day. Businesses suffering because they couldn't be open. So let's talk a little bit about some of those things because you've been a huge advocate for juveniles in the in the community mm -hmm. through your involvement with Big Brother Big Sister mm -hmm. and also through the juvenile detention center. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about children and abuse and your connection so, so this to is, the. This is what we have to be very businesses. very careful about, uh, specifically knowing that COVID nineteen doesn't really impact kids. Uh, now, our concern is the teachers mm -hmm. and people that work with the kids. That that that's who we have to protect. protect. I mean, that's th that is the conundrum that we have here. It's not so much the students; it's the it's the people that are on the front lines that are teaching these kids every day. Mm -hmm. um, but the way I look at it is, again, it's a form of service. You know, my yes. wife, pediatric nurse practitioner, still had to go to work every day, look after people. Right? This is mm -hmm. these are sacrifices and risks that we have to take in order to make sure that we even have an America here for the future. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, this next year is really important because we have to have the best economic year in the history of this country because we just added $10 trillion to our debt. And when we do that, who's going to pay for it? You see millennials like me. The very uh, schools, public schools, who are not, who are not currently in school that are f falling further behind, who's going to pay for this? They are. Gen mm -hmm. Z is going to pay for this. Our children. Our, it, right, right. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we cannot, we cannot ignore mm -hmm. at, at all. And, and we have to handle this delicately, of course, because mm -hmm. there are certain people that have different risk profiles, yes. and we need to respect that. But also, we have to make sure that, again, there is even an America to come back to. Driving around here can be quite depressing. When you look at the small businesses that are lost, it may absolutely never come back. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is devastating, mm -hmm. what we've seen. From, and, from and the good restaurants, for the, from the, the local convenience stores, that's right. it, it's baffling to see what's happened. That's right. That's right. And, and, and again, <clears throat> I can't stress enough the safety part of this whole thing. I can't stress enough protecting those people that are most vulnerable. But what I also have got to say is, is that at some point, we as a country have to get this thing started again. Mm -hmm. and, and we're getting to the point, to the, to the point of no return of, and, and, and of no full recovery. And it's getting dangerous for us in the future. And so I'm advocating for people to put our heads together and work together to find solutions to this problem. And I think we can do that. On both sides of the aisle. On both sides of the aisle. Because we need to be aisle. a team again. That's right. The United States of America, That's and right. not the divided states of America. That's right. And I'm not running for any office, <laughs> but I'm just protecting that. Feel free. But it's, it's just, it's how it is. It's crazy to, um, that, you know, what we're doing right now. I don't, I don't understand a lot of it. I want to get back to West Point for one second. Mm -hmm. What dorm were you in yeah. in West Point? So, one of the stories that I tell all the time when I'm on the trail that talks about, you know, division in this country and how far we've come and the progress that we've made. Um, obviously, West Point's near and dear to my heart because my family all went there and my siblings all went there. And a neat fun fact about West Point is that the barracks are named after West Point graduates that have gone off and done great things and become generals and former presidents like Eisenhower Barracks and Grant Barracks and uh, there's a MacArthur Barracks and many others, uh, but there's also a, a Robert E. Lee Barracks, which is the Confederate general that fought for the South against the riots of people who looked like me. So I found it fascinating that for a semester I spent a lot of time in and Robert E. Lee Barracks. And I remember walking into the threshold and looking up and seeing the name and kind of thinking to myself, wow, this is, this is an amazing country we live in. 
not just me, but my two siblings have had the distinction and honor of matriculating through the premier leadership institution of the world. And I'm not defined by the name on the building. I'm defined by first being an American. I'm defined by hard work, grit, determination, like most Americans are. If that building were named anything differently, I wouldn't have that perspective. For I am not defined by the name on a building or by a statue. That's the kind of perspective that I think we need to have back into this country. And on, on another Civil War West Point note, what people have to understand about division in this country, and that's that this is actually not that bad. We, we've, been, we've been way worse. So let's talk about the Civil War and let's talk about Robert E. Lee. Imagine being at West Point and serving four years uh, with your comrades, becoming friends with them, eating, training with them, going to class with them for four straight years. And trust me, I, I am very close to a lot of my West Point classmates. And depending on where you are from geographically during the Civil War, some would go and fight for the North and others would go and fight for the South. And you had West Point graduates that would graduate and they were killing each other. They spent four years together, camaraderie, building that bond, leadership skills together. Then because of where they were from, they had to go, boop, game over. Now we're, we're fighting against each other. And that's right. It's baffling. I mean, That's right. That's, that's, that's division. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an ad that was running for a little while that talked about my great-great-grandfather who was a slave. His name was Silas Crawford, born on Rosedown Plantation, 60 miles north of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And you look back, some... You know, a handful of generations later, in the literal sense, a handful, and you you have a family that has three West Point graduates. We've had the honor of serving our country in, in, in war. We have multiple master's degrees from Ivy League schools. We get to wake up in the morning and live, and live the American dream, and that's the progress that we've made. And again, I've been black for like 38 years. So I'm like, I, 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 look, I got it. I know what it's like to get profiled. I know what it's like to get pulled over because of the way I look and the color of my skin. But that doesn't mean that everything that we've done in this country is bad. In fact, I like the idea of even remembering the past, for if we don't remember it, we're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't like it, even if, it was, even if it's not popular, even if, even if it was cringeworthy, mm-hmm. let's not forget it. Don't throw it away. Remember it, because you don't want to feel that cringe ever again. You're also on a, a board of pachyderms. Yeah. What is the, explain that board? Uh, a lot of people don't Packard, know what that is. Pachyderm Club is a is a Republican organization throughout the country that mm-hmm. that meets weekly that kind of discusses Republican issues and we have people that come that come and speak and talk and basically you know how do we solve the world's problems from a uh, from a conservative vantage point, if you will. It's a great club and is something that is always a constant reminder that conservative values are still alive and well today. The biggest issue that I think we have in this country as a party, quite frankly, is how we message and how we package that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an issue that Dan Crenshaw and people like me and others around the country are trying to put in a bottle and message to the next generation that conservative values are kind of how we got here in the first place. You know, things like life and, and, and liberty and freedom and low regulation and low taxes. Smaller and government. Smaller, gov- keeping the government out of your personal life and out of your business and allowing you to make autonomous decisions, stuff like that. And I think, I think with this next crop of, of young millennial candidates that are currently entering the halls of Congress, I, I, I think we're going to be able to message that 
much better. And I, and I pivot from the Pachyderm Club because it tends to be actually an, an, an older group of people, which is fantastic because they are. Mm-hmm. They have the history. They have the history. They understand it. They get the messaging. And then it's nice to have kind of a younger candidate mm-hmm. that's a member of the club to start to take this messaging more to the next generation. And, and a different perspective because you are younger. You're 38 years yep. old. And about the climate and environment, yep. you want to protect the environment. Of course. And of you course. grew up seeing how things can change. And I liked your perspective because you talked about this before, too. Okay. Um, because just because you're Republican doesn't mean you want to burn down and have bad water and do this and do that. Not at all. Not at all. I, as a millennial, most of us, this tends to be a bit of a generational thing for the most part. But not always, but sometimes it can be. I, I'm not a climate denier. Like, like I, I get it. Um, I just want to have honest conversations about what fossil fuels and what the oil and gas industry means to this world. And right now we're being demonized needlessly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, the benevolence of the Green New Deal and, and the idea of it sounds really good, but, but it, doesn't, it, it doesn't make any practical sense. Mm-hmm. So if we're trying to address global warming and the operative word in global warming is the word globe, we have to get India and China and Russia mm-hmm. and, and South America and Africa. And Africa. It, 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 these countries have to get on board with reducing their carbon footprint. and we can liter- Or we could destroy the oil and gas industry here in the United States at no gain to the globe. Mm-hmm. If we stopped producing or doing anything in the U.S. for a year, it wouldn't make a difference in the world with what's going on. If you do the math of what we produce in carbon footprint each year compared to what India, Africa, China, it's just baffling. And we've spent time over there with our business. I've been in China in winter when it is, you can't see across the street, your eyes are burning. We were in a taxi cab one time and my wife goes, well, this guy didn't bathe. I said, babe, it's not that he didn't bathe. The window is down and that's just the pollution is so bad in China, you can't even see outside. Well, they're building four coal plants per month in India and in China as we speak. In fact, if we were able to snap our fingers right now and be carbon neutral tomorrow, it would have no impact on the globe. I would argue it'd be even worse because we are reducing our carbon footprint because of hydraulic fracturing and natural gas because it flat out burns cleaner. I would argue that we should probably probably be exporting more of that to India and China so they don't have to use as much coal if you really want to reduce the carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, on the Democrat ticket, Joe Biden is on is on record for saying no new fracking and Kamala Harris is the co-sponsor and co-author, excuse me, of the Green New Deal in the Senate. So let's think about that. Why do you want to end the very technology that is reducing our carbon footprint that has granted us energy independence? And oh, by the way, 20 years ago before we had fracking, we would kill a bad guy in the Middle East and then turn around and ask those same countries for oil. And we don't have to do that anymore. And so it's an issue of national security as well. And quite frankly, we aren't going anywhere. And again, a lot of the benevolent left leftists, far leftists, don't understand that we're sitting right now in this booth in this microphone, this phone, this I voted sticker, and everything that we use is a byproduct of hydrocarbons in the oil and gas industry. Again, it is my idea that we work with the industry to eventually progress to our next abundant and most importantly affordable energy source, not just for the U.S., but for the entire world. It's my opinion that the next trillionaire, if Jeff Bezos doesn't get there first, has already been born. And he or she, they will be the person that comes up with the next affordable and abundant energy source to fuel the world. And eventually we're going to get there. And I accept that we're going to get there. But you're not going to get there without us. 
the trucking industry, they think that, um, I know that they think they can bring electric trucks out and they can do this and they can change it. But the fact is how many millions, I think you know the, the statistics on how many trucks and what's going on and how that won't change either. Yeah. It's, it, that's, it, that's exactly right. It, it, we have current, currently in the world today, there are roughly one billion with a B mm-hmm. light trucks and vehicles that are gas powered in the world today. And over the course of the next 20 years, we're going to add another billion vehicles. And of that billion vehicles, 750 million of them are going to be gas powered. This is for the next 20 years. So we, 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 aren't, we aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. We aren't going anywhere. The, the whole argument is, is that well, the good thing is 250 million of them are not going to be gas powered. Okay, good. And my guess is over the next few generations, we're going to see an inflection point over in, here, in, here in the future. But, we, but, but again, we don't get there by demonizing the industry. It's the federal government's responsibility to make sure that we work with the private sector to innovate to the next step. It's not the government's role to end an industry. That's gross federal government overreach. And what's being suggested uh, by uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is gross government overreach. That's not what the Constitution says the, the role of the federal st- government is. The state of California. You know, take a look at that. Oh, it's, yeah. You're doing so much locally, and we've talked um, about the looking at, so obviously the impact of um, the fuel industry, uh, the oil and gas industry, is a huge impact on us here locally. But another big thing is flooding. When Harvey hit us, that was very impactful on our community. And um, taxes and other things. You Tell us a little bit about your stance on those mm-hmm. areas, because I know you've spoken about changes with the flooding here in Houston. So Hurricane Harvey hit us three years ago, hit us pretty hard. We've had mm-hmm. hurricane season ever, every, every year since then. Okay, so what exactly have we done for flood mitigation mm-hmm. at the federal level uh, to ensure that we even have a Houston for the next time the big storm hits? And the answer is nothing. Uh, right now, what we know for a fact is we need to dredge Attics and Barker Reservoirs, partly part of which will be in my district here after I win, and of course, Dan Crenshaw. So we need to work together to get that done, and it needs to be dredged out. We need to talk about building that third reservoir, and we've known this for you know for 60 years. The topography of Houston mm-hmm. actually has not changed at all. I'm sick of studies. We don't, need, we don't need any more studies. We had one big study. It's called Hurricane Harvey. Let's start moving dirt yesterday because a bucket of dirt, not in Attics and Barker, is a bucket of water, not in your homes. And this is what we have to focus on. And over the course of the last two years, since Lizzie Fletcher has been our congresswoman, not a single bucket of dirt has been moved. Now, fortunately for the people here in this district, I spent 12 years in the Army, so I speak fluent Army Corps of Engineers. And mm-hmm. I know what it takes to have to get to, to get this ball rolling. And so does Dan Crenshaw, actually. And so this, this is the kind of team that we are trying to build to get things done. And I'm not so... Uh, a fool to think that Wesley Hunt can do it all by himself, but I want to begat the next person that begats the next person that builds that coalition of like-minded, young, vibrant minds to make sure that we actually take care of the issues here in Houston, flooding being one of them. You also talked about Texas. Taxes. Mm-hmm. Taxes. Taxes yes. is a big issue for me. Uh, because it's my humble opinion that we don't have a tax revenue issue. In fact, I don't think we should be paying more taxes at all. Mm-hmm. We have a spending problem. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, we uh, this country generated the uh, highest um, uh, tax revenue in the history of this country and increased our deficit by another trillion dollars. What that tells me 
is that you could keep taxing people all you want. If you're going to keep spending, then you're never going to actually get to, to the bottom of the problem, which is our deficit. There's, there's like a hole in a bucket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so you gotta, you got you to gotta damn the hole first, and then we can start actually addressing this deficit issue. Again, who's going to be paying for this? My generation and your kids. Mm-hmm. I'm running to make sure that my generation has a seat at the table at some of the decisions that are getting made that I'm going to have to pay for. Excuse me. We are, are going to have to pay, pay for. for. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a that's that, that's kind of a problem. Also, going into the pandemic, we had a 21 trillion dollar deficit. When it's all said and done, it looks like we're going to add another 10 trillion dollars to our deficit by 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 next year. That that's dangerous to me. I do understand the federal government stepping in and helping out her citizens during a time of a pandemic, particularly when we are asking people to stay home and not work because it's an issue of public safety. I'm all for that. I get it. We should be helping out our citizens. But but when you're starting off with a $20 trillion deficit, then you're asking the taxpayers to take on even a more onerous and burdensome debt to the tune of $10 trillion more dollars, this now becomes problematic. That's why earlier in the show, I was talking about how important it is for us to get back to work and have the best economic year we've had in the history of this country to even begin to recover from this. And that's actually where we were before COVID-19 hit. We were rolling. We were doing this, great. It was, it this, was city, amazing, this city yeah. was so fun. We have to get back to it. You couldn't get a reservation in good restaurants. Yeah. Our business was booming. Even Costco was busy then, not as crazy as Costco was this last yes. yeah. six months. Yeah, the Costco um, and the, the uh, Purell guy. But I think that that yes. we look at um, the thing that I found the most difficult when I watch the news is sort of this demonizing of the small business owners and how they're making so much money. And and with <laughs> with Hurricane Harvey hitting us and with us losing revenue there and yeah. now with the pandemic. And it, it's just been an interesting analysis of can you talk a little bit more about the small business owners? We need to have a re-education in this country about what capitalism is and what it means. If you're a small business owner, that means you took a lot of risk. You probably took on a lot of debt. You probably went through a lot of sleepless nights. You probably, at one point, you were so levered up, you, you, you couldn't even sleep at night. You had to wonder how you were going to provide for your family the next day. But you stuck with it through grit, determination, and capitalism in the American way, and you figured it out, and and you became successful. And you should be rewarded for that. That is the American way. No, you shouldn't be taxed more for it. No, you shouldn't have to pay uh, more for, for, for insurance. No, you shouldn't be regulated more. You should be rewarded for that because that's one of the three ways to really achieve a lot of success. Here in this country is through franchisee, it's through franchising, it's through small business, and it's through working your way up through the through the corporate world. But but this is this is one of those three pillars is owning your own business. It literally is the American dream. Mm-hmm. And the small businesses in this community have been hit the hardest mm-hmm. of all. And not, not and not just the small businesses, but but the employment that they provide for millions of Americans every single day. Think about that. Which leads me to talking about healthcare and small businesses. Yeah. And there's this perception that the um, CARE Act would provide for everyone, but it hasn't provided for everyone. Other people in other countries, even if they're given health care, they aren't able to access health care. Right. 
it's such a big issue. We don't expect you to have the answer, but can you tell us some of your thoughts on that journey? Right. So the, the quality of care in this country is the greatest in the world. And I know that because when I was stationed in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah, who has since passed, but was the king mm -hmm. of Saudi Arabia at the time, so it was a pretty big deal. When he had a heart condition, where did he come? He came here. Mm -hmm. Houston, Texas is where he came. You see, if anybody has a big issue in the entire world and they can afford it, where do they come? They come here because it's the best care in the world. Now, what the Affordable Care Act did was drive premiums up to where it is completely unaffordable for the average American and particularly small business owners. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. Now, there are two things that came out of the ACA that I think we need, we need to keep, and that's mm -hmm. protecting those Americans with pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. I think that's the federal government's role in keeping her citizens safe, and that's protecting those who are most vulnerable. I absolutely agree with that. And also allowing our children to stay on uh, our health care plans to the age of 26 years old. Now, there's ads being run about me, being run about me that, that says that I want to do away with you know, we saw protecting those with pre-existing conditions. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen because, quite frankly, three weeks ago, I believe my wife had the ultimate pre-existing condition because she was pregnant. <laughs> yes. So, so let, let's have a real conversation about that. Uh, we don't have a quality of care problem in this country. We have a cost of care mm -hmm. problem in this country. And the left right now <clears throat> is shifting or attempting to shift to socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. God bless the VA. I'm currently in the VA system. My dad mm -hmm. retired from the VA, actually. Look, uh, God bless those people that work with our veterans, but I'm here to tell you that's not the system that we need for 370 million Americans. Mm -hmm. And what socialized medicine does is it actually degrades the quality of care. It disincentivizes our brilliant young people to want to even become physicians. And God knows we need as many as we can get. In fact, we need more. And most importantly, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So. Well, let's address the cost of care by uh, making sure that we allow insurance companies to sell their insurance policies across state lines. What does that do? It increases competition. What's that called? It's called capitalism. It is. We've seen that when you pay cash for something and you don't go through your insurance. It's what, 10% of the cost? Of I had to get in a couple MRIs recently. Yeah, and it was $3,500 for an MRI. Yeah. I said, um, I'm a cash payer. They said, um, since you're going to do two of them, they'll be $350 each. That, that, that's, so 7000 versus that, that's $700. Right. That's, right. that's right. That's right. And when you're talking about capitalism, <laughs> best of breed breeds innovation and the smartest, mm -hmm. the bright, the best, most, the best, best, the the most the brilliant way. minds yeah. Yeah. to the industry. And that's why we have the finest doctors. Yes. Because you know what? Those guys are the ones that put in 10 or 12 years in school, extra school. They're, yes. And they had the ability, the ones that can take apart your heart and fix it right. they should make more money than someone that's not willing to make the sacrifices they should be compensated accordingly that's right mm -hmm. that's right that's right i mean it's I, I have so much respect for the doctors and how much harder they worked at what they did yeah. we struggled to build our business but we didn't put in the time like you did to get three masters degrees. Right. Still, still when, we first, when you first walked in and she's talking, I'm going, yo, your husband's right here, honey. Right here. He's married with two beautiful children too, all right? So just, you know, let's back on, back on focus. Um, speaking of that, you, you believe in the sanctity of life also. I do, yes I am. I, I am pro-life. And, and you know what's really neat too, is just when you see your you know, child, and you, you kind of see the ultrasounds. And sadly, during this pregnancy, I was actually not able to go. I know we to the can't ultrasounds, go and it was it was kind of sad. Um, I, didn't think, I, I didn't even think about that. It was it was rough. It was rough on us because that's kind of something that I that I value tremendously. But mm -hmm. but 
but it's okay. It's okay. It's, again, sacrifices we had to make. And when you see that person growing and now to, you know, welcome them into the world, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual um, experience for someone like me. And, and it is my opinion that we should do our best to protect the sanctity of life and the unborn. Um, and also, the one thing that really bothers me, and I'm unapologetic about talking about this, because, again, if we're really going to have substantive conversations about this issue and about black America, what I don't like is the fact that one in three uh, abortions are actually at the hands of black women, yet we're only 13 percent of the population. And I don't I, that that just rubs me the wrong way because it seems to be a bit deceptive in what the intent is here. Uh, in New York City, there there are more aborted black babies than born. Now, that, now wow. that should that shouldn't sit well. That should I don't I don't care where well you anyone. are on the mm-hmm. spectrum. I don't care if you're pro life or pro choice. I I don't want to even get too far in the weeds on that. But that should be something that we should be thinking about here culturally and societally. Is, is that is that acceptable? Uh, and, and I want to think that. That, that it's not, you know, why is a minority group disproportionately responsible for basically not allowing people like them that look like them on planet Earth? Let's, let's just call it what it is. And I, I am open to conversations about this. Most importantly, I learned this from, from Senator Tim Scott. Let's lead with our hearts. Let's not beat people over the head with it. Let, let's have conversations about it. And I feel like that's kind of where the pro-life message gets lost every now and again is that Let's let's lead with the fruits of the spirit. In my opinion, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's lead with that to open the door to have real deep conversations instead of just condemning people. That's not what Christ mandated for us to do in the first place. But I think if we could meet where people are and have conversations, that we could talk about this in a substantive way and figure out a solution uh, that's better than what we're seeing right now. What I do understand is that this is a tough decision to make for anybody. Let, let's just let's just call that what it is. I'm not even trying to sit here and say that, that well that must have been easy to have an abortion or you're thinking about it. I, I'm sure it's crossed the minds of many people. But again, I want to open the conversation up for it, not just demonize people because we are all flawed. We are all victims of the human condition. So my argument is is let's have let's let's have some compassion about it, then work together uh, to solve these problems. And so much of it is through education, and so many charities are working to help people from different socioeconomic backgrounds to learn about these different things. Um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the the kids that you've worked with through Big Brother, Big Sister, Mm -hmm. and like mentoring these kids and how and the juvenile detention center you work with because because I think those are significant things to change the future instead of addressing the problems, Mm -hmm. which we have to address the problems. It's how we go through. And I've been really involved with Crime Stoppers of Houston um, and then with Houston 20 to stop sex trafficking. But so much about these kids and these youth that are being abused or going through difficult things as they don't know who to go who they can go to for help they don't know how to get out of and they don't even know necessarily that it's wrong so can you talk a little bit about that part of your journey well i'm here to tell you that i've learned more from these young 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 minorities and young black men than um i've learned more from them than they probably learned from me to be honest with you uh, what i've learned is that you know it, they've taught me about how to have just more compassion in general mm-hmm. so i i am the product of having the greatest privilege of all, and that's called parent privilege. 
Yes. See, I, I had two parents that were fantastic, that loved me, cared for me. My, one fun fact about my dad is I played varsity football at St. John's, and my dad did not miss a single football game. So when you think about that, varsity, and I played varsity at the three, of the three, three of the four years in JV on my freshman year at St. John's, and it's a lot of football games, and even the ones in Oklahoma, and even the ones in Austin, and even the ones in Dallas. He was there. So when you think about the fact that I had just parent privilege, which, which actually supersedes any kind of privilege that, mm-hmm. that you can imagine, as you were talking about earlier, I drove 45 yes. minutes one way to go to Huge. school. I didn't grow up in River Oaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I wouldn't trade my parents mm-hmm. for all the resources in the world because that's why I'm here. That's why I have my values. I say that because these young people gave me an appreciation for my parents that, that you can never believe. And I've realized that this cuts across racial lines. You see, parenting is not an issue of black or white or Hispanic or Asian. Parenting is just the ultimate leveling of the playing field. And if you're willing to sacrifice for your kids and show them an education and raise God-fearing, you know, American kids, their chances of success increase exponentially. It's not even close, regardless of, of what they look like or what their socioeconomic background is. Mm-hmm. And so what I saw, what, what was missing in a lot of these kids is that cultural aspect of just having two parents who loved them and cared for them. That's all. That's all. So the solution to this is actually, what in my opinion, is more of a cultural issue here, here, here in America. What do we do to instill those values back so that these kids and these young people feel loved, they feel wanted, and they feel like they can be somebody. My parents never allowed us to make excuses for anything. It was never anybody else's fault. It was always your fault, no matter what. And when you take extreme ownership like that in your life, well, then good things happen, even when it's not fair. Even when it's not fair. And so what I'm seeing in a lot of these young people is, is that because they, they didn't have that tutelage at a very young age growing up, it, it's, it, the, the deck is stacked against them. Yes, they're black. Yes, they come from uh, low socioeconomic backgrounds. Yes, they have very limited resources. Most importantly, they didn't have a mom and a dad. Mm-hmm. We could talk about all the other stuff. You could throw money at a situation. You, you, if you don't fix that, that the, the idea of feeling loved and wanted by your community and by your family and by your parents, you're never going to solve the problem. And so in Washington, that's really going to be what my focus is, is, is more on, less throwing money at problems and more about what do we do to educate and change the culture. And then we get going in the right direction, then, then, and then the money works. Well, places like Yellowstone and the Kip Academy—they're yeah, doing great they're doing things great to work. hold Been doing great kids work. accountable. Mm-hmm. And that graduation rate itself just shows what you can do by starting right. at a young age with all of them. That's right. Well, we are running out of time, that but great. on our—we'd uh, love to hear from you. Authenticity. What um, authenticity is defined? as a collection of choices that we make every day about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let ourselves be true and be seen. And you are such a picture of authenticity. How can, how will you bring authenticity to the office of Congress? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems it to needs, be needing a lot, a lot of authenticity. So in every talk of every day, I always talk about my 14 classmates are no longer with us uh, because they paid the ultimate sacrifice in the global war on terror. Um, one of them is a man by the name of David Frazier. He was my friend. 
and he was killed on November 26, 2006, on his last mission in combat. And I have the greatest honor that I'll ever have in my life of giving his eulogy when I was 25 years old. So when you talk about authenticity, you see there was bloodshed from my friends, and that easily could have been me. I don't have a choice but to be authentic. I don't have a choice but to represent this district with, with honor and distinction because, again, I have to wake up knowing that there are people that sacrificed, men that were better than me, that are no longer with us, for me to be able to do this right now. And when you go into this job, to a job like this with that kind of mentality, it makes it pretty easy to take on to take on anything that somebody might bring to you or to take a hard vote or to have to explain something that's that quite frankly was the right call even if it was unpopular and what i'm finding out in the world today particularly in this community is that people don't want to stand up for anything because it's hard they don't want to do the right thing because it's difficult or somebody somebody put a bug in their ear and they listen to this person and they're just literally flapping in the wind with with absolutely no true north Whatever anybody tells them, that's what they do. Well, that's actually what's happening in Washington, quite frankly. We get the leadership that we deserve a lot of times. And that's where people like me come in and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, I, I'm going to be authentic, but most importantly, I'm going to be authentic to the district that I represent. And currently, our current congresswoman, in my opinion, is not authentic to the, repre- to, to, to the district that she is supposed to represent. And you know it's true, because otherwise, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be doing this well. So that's what that's what authenticity means to me. Well, thank you for your time with us today. It is absolutely my pleasure. Too much fun. Enjoyed it. Yes, very, very good time. We'll talk more later, too, because happy to be back. I want to help you any way we can. We need you to vote, everybody. And I have a saying, too. If you don't vote, you can't complain or as I say <laughs> you can't you, you can't complain got it, got it. so uh, go out and vote whatever whatever team you're voting for vote because we need to vote and that's what's great about our country we have the ability to vote that's right we have democracy that's right thank you again. this is my pleasure thank you thank you for having me appreciate it